It is an honour to be here this morning on what is one of perhaps the most important festivals in our Christian calendar. The day we celebrate the Holy Spirit coming to earth to stay. First we're going to talk a bit about the Spirit as part of the Trinity and then move on to talking about how he brings us the new wine before finishing by talking about the Spirit's works and actions today. Before anything though, to get ourselves into the mindset of the disciples, I want to take us back to the start of Acts, the last time that the disciples see Jesus. Of course, before that, they've seen their brother, their teacher, their Lord, killed at the hands of the Romans by the workings of the Jewish council. They've probably wondered what went wrong. Thought that this was the end, that perhaps it was all too good to be true. And then the disciples experienced the joyous reunion with their Lord, the incredible high after the devastating low. But then a strange emotion to follow. The Lord who had returned and brought them so much joy was about to depart once more, this time in more glorious circumstances. We know that the Lord reassures them and tells them of their impending baptism with the Holy Spirit, but we also know that the disciples aren't the best at listening to Jesus' words, especially when he's talking about what's going to be happening in the future. And it's easy to be condemning of them, but it's astonishing how quickly we can all forget things that seem so unforgettable at the time. There are some times we remember events vividly, really clearly, but then there are always little bits that we forget, little details, and it's always those bits that turn out to be the most important. And sometimes we remember whole events clearly, but then there's a little chunk missing. And how often do we come to church on a Sunday, hear the word of God and feel moved to change our ways, moved even to tears sometimes. And yet we leave the building, we sleep and we wake, and the next week starts, and already it slips to the back of our mind. It's not the front of our thinking anymore. Another week has begun and we're getting on with our lives. So we know that the disciples' faults are just as common as our own. We then hear that they're all gathered together when this event takes place. Maybe some of them are still thinking about all that has happened. And without warning, the miracle begins. They hear that mighty wind bursting forth and tongues of fire falling down. The Holy Spirit has come, just like Jesus told them. And not only has he come, the Holy Spirit, part of our triune God, has come to stay. When we think about the Trinity And it's something we'll be doing, I'm sure, a bit more so next week with Trinity Sunday. We can so easily get confused. The concept of one God 
but in three parts, separate yet together, three yet one. It is incomprehensible. But you know what? That's okay. We're not meant to be able to fully understand the ins and outs of it. Just to trust and to know that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. For some of us we may see God coming first and then Jesus comes in the New Testament and then the Holy Spirit comes after that. But they are God. They have all always been from the beginning of time. In Genesis we hear that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and the darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we hear about God first and then we hear about the Spirit that hovers or broods over the water like a bird as the message puts it. We also know from the beginning of John's Gospel that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Who is the Word? And we know that he is Jesus. So we know that Jesus always was as well. There from the very beginning. So this is not the creation of the Spirit that we see in Acts and the completion of the Trinity. But rather it's the completion of God's coming to earth. In Genesis we know that God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. Then in the Gospels we know that Jesus came to earth as a man. And here we see the Spirit coming and touching down on the earth for the first time. Entering the hearts of men for the first time. We have seen the Spirit descend before, when Jesus is baptised, but then he rests on Jesus. This is a first. Now there comes a very easy link to make, but is it a correct one? Jesus has ascended, the Spirit has descended, but does that mean therefore that the Spirit replaces Jesus? Jesus' work is done, and now the Spirit's work is beginning. Well, it sounds nice. It sounds like it fits. But I'm sure we'd all agree that it's not right. Jesus has ascended, but his work is not done. And he is not truly left. For starters, we're talking about him right now, 2,000 years later. And of course, there will be that day when Jesus comes again, on white clouds in glorious judgment. Now this is the nature of the Trinity and its beauty. The one God, three parts, all intertwined, never separate. Just as Jesus didn't replace God when he came, the Spirit is not replacing Jesus. Rather they are ever adding to the glory of our God and ever increasing the mercy that flows to us through the wondrous gifts freely given again and again. So in Acts we see the Spirit come and the disciples speaking in the tongues of many nations. But it's important to make the di distinction here between 
The tongues heard on this day and the tongues seen as spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians. The tongues on this day are not the same as those spoken through the gift and power of the Spirit. They don't need to be interpreted. In fact, they are something far more special on this day. Tongues spoken as spiritual gifts need to be interpreted. You need to have those both parts. And it's that interpretation that makes it so special. But here, what sets these tongues apart is that they don't need interpreting. Because everyone there that day hears the tongues in his own native language. The response of some of the crowd when they hear this noise from those upon who the Spirit has rested is wonder, amazement, shock and questioning. But inevitably, as we heard, the response of others is they must be drunk. They must have had too much to drink. They must be filled with the new wine, as the ESV puts it. And as much as they can say, we can say, unbelievers, how dare they see the glory of the Lord and respond in that way. But how many of us get uneasy and sceptical when we hear about people speaking in tongues or healing or using any of those other spiritual gifts that Paul talks about? And yet he tells us, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another tongues. All these, pardon me, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So Paul says, to each is given one of those gifts. So why have we become so fixated on some of those gifts, and yet so afraid of others? We'll happily listen to somebody who tells us that the Spirit works through them to give them wisdom or knowledge or faith. But if they tell us that the Spirit works through them to give prophecy, the gift of healing, the working of miracles, or the speaking or interpreting of tongues, we think they're a bit mad, that they're crazy. We sometimes even think, even if we don't say it, I wonder if these people are truly Christian? Do they worship the same God as me? Are they really saved? And of course, the answer is plainly and emphatically, yes. I'm not being naive here, and I know that there are some who use tongues and healing as gimmicks and showpieces, as a way to draw in a crowd and perhaps empty their pockets faster. But it's easy to tell the difference between the gifts of the Spirit and the blasphemy of those using them falsely. Paul says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will you benefit 
unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Without interpretation, tongues presented to a congregation is pointless and it is not biblical. There are those who would pray to God in tongues quietly or even silently to themselves and it's not those people whom I talk about here. But it is unbiblical and blasphemous to stand in front of a crowd and talk in tongues without interpretation or even to fake it for effect. But with interpretation in place, with tongues spoken and interpreted in biblical truth, what is our first response? And to direct our thoughts back to that day of Pentecost, what would our true response be upon seeing the sights of that day? Would we celebrate and join in, or would we look the other way, embarrassed, stuck in our chains of propriety and dignity, shutting out the glory and the freedom of the Spirit? As I'm sure we're well aware, the Football World Cup is to start this coming week in Brazil. Without doubt, the opening ceremony will be a great giant party, as will any match that Brazil plays, and certainly any match that Brazil wins. And for the English, I'm sure any match that we win will no doubt be greeted with cheering, the throwing up of arms, the shouts of adulation, the singing of songs. We will probably all at some point have responded in that way to either a sporting event or to some other competition. Only two nights ago, I was at Canterbury to see Kent playing Middlesex in the 2020. And when David Griffiths bowled Dan Christian, who had scored 127 of 57 balls and leading Middlesex to victory, when he was bowled in the last over... To effectively win the game, I, along with 4,000 other people, jumped to my feet, shouted in joy, clapped my hands and smiled from ear to ear. So if we behave like this at sporting events, about sporting teams, about a football tournament where we support the inanimate object that is a piece of land on which we were born, then why do, we not, why do we come to church and restrain ourselves and our emotions so heavily? Why do we sing in gentle melody rather than loudly and passionately? Why do we stand perfectly rigid when we sing about the glory of God? Why do we not clap our hands for the Lord more often? And why do we sometimes even sing without a smile on our face? Even though the words coming out of our mouths are about the God who has saved us from an eternal fire. I truly do not have a good enough answer for this. All I can suggest is that we're too worried about what others will think. As humans, we want to be with the majority. And at a football match, if your team scores, the majority of people shout and dance and clap and sing and jump for joy. If you're at church and singing praise to God, the majority of people are standing rigidly so often and singing so as not to disturb the person in front of them. 
What will it change to take the sway, to change the sway of that majority? I'm so glad you asked. The crowd said that these people upon whom the Spirit had come to rest were filled with the new wine. And that's exactly what we need to be. Full of the Spirit. To the point at which people will think that we're drunk. Jesus says, and it's recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke, that no one puts new wine in old wineskins, but rather you need a new wineskin. We must be ready to accept the Spirit and wholeheartedly drink of his joy. And we must be prepared to be that majority in joyful praise. If you start it, others will join in, I promise. But what about those who still have an old wineskin, who are not ready to accept the new wine yet, who have closed their hearts to God? Well, when we look more closely at our reading from John today, we'll notice something in the very first verse. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. The doors were locked. And it's also in verse 26 later on, the doors were locked. The doors were locked to all, and yet still, Jesus got in. I was talking to a friend a few weeks ago, who was telling me how she used to go to church as a child. But then a series of events centred around the birth of her child with cerebral palsy was just too much. Questions like, why me? What have I done to deserve this testing and this struggle? Entered her head. Questions like, if there was a God, why would he let something like this happen to one of his flock? And as humans, it's only natural that we would ask such questions in the face of such things. Walls go up. Doors get locked. In the face of struggle, people really split into those two ways. Either they fall more heavily reliant on God, or they fall more and more away from him. We see it happen, and I'm sure some, if not all, of you have seen it happen to people you know. When they lock those doors, they are shutting out everyone, everything. Even God's love and his power to save. But I believe the first part of our reading from John tells us to have hope for those who, have, who don't have faith in Christ as yet. Because no matter what we do, even if we bolt the door, lock it, put in fingerprint scanners and retina scanners, ID cards, 10-inch thick armour plating, whatever you want, no matter what you put out, put up, to shut out others. Jesus can get in. In our reading from John, Jesus didn't knock on the door or pick the lock. It wasn't left to us or to chance at all. He just entered. It's not down to us. It's not you who saves you. It's difficult to see people we know and love who don't believe, but know that for Jesus... 
A locked door is not an obstacle. It's just more of a reason to get in. But how does he get in? Well, perhaps that's not for us to know. But perhaps that's where today's reading from Acts can help. Jesus is just one part of that triune God. The Father has already shown us immense mercy and love just by us being here, us waking up this morning. But it's the power of the Spirit that can move and can come rushing in like a strong wind and change everything in an instant for somebody that can break down walls and barriers and that can start somebody in a new life, a new beginning, rested in the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ. So have faith for those still struggling with their old wineskin. God is the miracle maker after all. And remember this also, that when the people around where the disciples were heard the great noise and the commotion that followed, they rushed to see what was happening. And upon seeing, many were astonished and believed. So let us set the trend, be the first and throw off those shackles. Stop being conformed to what your body is holding you back from. Close your eyes if necessary. Let the Spirit of the Lord come and dwell within you and let him take over your worship of our almighty God for he is worthy. He is worthy. Alleluia. Praise the Lord and Amen.